Chapter 8 of The Mystery of the Woods by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 In a minute the five outlaws emerged from the darkness and entered into the circle of firelight. Their personal appearance bore witness of the desperate conflict through which they had passed, for their garments were torn, their faces bruised, and their looks were the looks of those who have just issued from a desperate fray. Two of them walked with great difficulty, being supported by their companions, their faces white as those who suffer from intense pain. It was with evident relief that the whole party threw themselves upon the dry ground near the fire, in front of which was a goodly supply of cooked provisions and a large pot filled with coffee. In a moment they were all busily engaged in appeasing their appetites, eating as men in the woods will after a long fast. The gambler looked them over with an eye which, while it seemed wholly indifferent, nevertheless took within its gaze every evidence which the outlaws presented calculated to illustrate the character and the result of their adventure. He even whistled a whole stanza of the hymn, as with immovable and passive countenance he gazed first from one to the other. At last, he said, speaking to the half-breed, How did the game go? It went against us answered the half-breed gloomily. "'A misplay?' asked the gambler interrogatively. "'Yes,' replied the half-breed. "'The devil helped him as usual.' "'You had a strong hand,' returned the other after a pause, during which he had been quietly and perhaps unconsciously shuffling the cards. "'You had a strong hand,' he continued. "'And if you got the lead, I don't see how you could have failed to make your point.' but after all you're never quite certain with the joker in the pack. The old fellow was in luck this morning when I called on him, and I've often noticed that when luck comes in the morning it stays overnight. His luck has stayed with him anyway, answered the half-breed. Our plot was a good one. We had him in our power. I have had him so twice before, and now for the third time he has escaped. That is his luck, answered the gambler coolly. There's no playing against luck. A fool in Toronto actually cleaned me out last fall, and he scarcely knew a queen from a jack. And I was playing with a favorite pack, too. And the gambler laughed pleasantly to himself. What did you do? asked the half-breed, in whose mind the gambler's quiet recital of his singular experience had produced the effect of making him forget his own disappointment temporarily. I took the bumpkin by the arm and escorted him to the hotel. Had him deposit the pile with the clerk slept with him that night, and gave him a little advice the next morning. "'What did you advise him?' asked the half-breed. "'I advised him to go home,' replied the gambler, laughing. "'It was the only time my advice was ever taken, I think,' he continued with a tone of good-natured satire in his voice. "'He wanted to divide, but I laughed at him. I actually pushed him aboard of the cars.' The last I saw of him, he was standing on the platform with his hands full of bills and tears in his eyes. Yes, the fool was actually blubbering. I made it up the next night, and a little over. I was escorted to the cars next morning myself. Quite a company went down to see me off. I haven't been in Toronto since. But how about your game with the trapper? It looked like a sure thing. How did you get beaten? Thus urged, the half-breed recited the experiences of the night. The ambushing of the cabin, the secreting of themselves in the cellar, the trapper's return, and the dreadful combat— the sudden reinforcement the old man had received in the person of the Yankee, and the discomfiture of the outlaws, 
All was told with a vividness of description and energy of voice and gesture, which reproduced each act of the terrible drama and startling clearness to the gambler's mind. He listened to the narration with close attention, but with the coolness which distinguishes the men of his calling. When the recital was over, silence fell upon the group. At last, the gambler said, It's all luck, and when luck gets the deal, there's no safety in betting. What do you propose to do next? I propose to try it over again, replied the half-breed savagely. None of us are hurt badly, and a good night's sleep will put us in good trim again. We will try it over, he muttered, and the next time we go, we shall take something besides knives. Don't get excited, said the gambler coolly. It's a big pile you are playing for, and the man on the other side of the table holds the cards as if he had a strong hand. I think you'd better sleep on it before you decide. Tomorrow we'll cut for a new deal. Good night. So saying, the man who trusted in luck stretched himself at length on the ground, and, pulling a blanket partially over his body, gazed upward for a moment into the great star-lighted dome, whistled softly a strain or two of the old Methodist hymn, then his eyes slowly closed and he slept. The next day passed without any exhibition of activity by either party. The outlaws spent the greater part of it in sleep, the gambler and the giant keeping watch. Near night a general council was held, and the question of retreat was fully discussed. Two of the outlaws favored the idea, urging in support of their views that the trapper, when unassisted even, was a formidable enemy but that being now reinforced by the Yankee, he was unquestionably able to cause them a vast amount of trouble, if not actual loss. They also called attention to the peculiar character of their enterprise and the strong probability that one with the skill and courage of the trapper would ultimately discover, by some trick or device, the secret of the tent, and so make himself master of all they desired to accomplish. It was evident that upon these two men, at least, the terrible fight in the trapper's cabin had made a powerful effect, and that they dreaded to push the contest further against a man of so determined a nature, and whom fortune invariably favored. But with the others, an opposite opinion prevailed. The half-breed was bent on revenge, and craved nothing so much as another chance to attempt the trapper's life. Indeed, his malignity was of the fiercest sort, even declared that should the decision be against him, and the party endeavored to depart, he himself would remain and seek his revenge alone that he would never leave the lake alive unless he met the man he hated with so deadly a hatred, a corpse on its shores. This savage feeling the two remaining outlaws shared to the full, each declaring that he would sooner betray the trust committed to his charge than lose their revenge on the man who had inflicted on them so severe a punishment and so unexpected a disgrace. The gambler listened to each speaker with his customary calmness, and when called upon for his opinion, gave it, characteristically, as follows. I think, he said quietly, that the game must go on. The old man has taken the first tricks and counts the four honors, that's certain. There's no telling how the next deal will go, for the luck may change, but the chances are in our favor, and if they were not, we have got to play the game through all the same. It's a nasty mess he continued, and I wish I was out of it, but having consented to make one of the table, I don't propose to throw up the hand. Then again, we couldn't get away if we tried, for the old chap has got his blood up and we couldn't shake him off, 
I have a feeling that we couldn't move a boat out of this lake without his knowing it, and that means a fight, and if we have got the fight, we stand a better chance to fight it out here than if we try to move, for here we can act in concert and make the odds count against him, but if we make a move, the odds will be in his favor, for he can trail us and pick us off in detail, and I fancy that some of you chaps would feel his lead before you got five miles down the river. I don't think we'd better make a move, therefore, at least for a day or two, but hold the camp here and see what will turn up. You know my feelings about killing him. I don't want to do it, but of course we have this little job to attend to, and he must let us alone or take the consequences. But I give you fellows warning that he plays a strong hand, and if you want to make your points, you mustn't play your cards carelessly. I don't fancy you need run after him much, for if you don't see or hear him during the night, I shall be mistaken. He isn't a man to study his hand long as I measure him. I don't think you had all better sleep tonight. Luck makes a man bold, and he'll order us up before morning. That's my idea of the game. To this opinion, the outlaws all yielded ready assent, at least all except the half-breed who ridiculed the idea of the trapper making any attack upon the camp, defended by such numbers as he well knew it was. He expressed the opinion that the old man would wait and attack, not make one, and advocated that they besiege him in his cabin with the idea of burning or starving him out. It was with great reluctance that he allowed himself to be overruled, but at last he yielded to the more cautious wishes of his companion, and consented to remain in his own camp, for that night at least, only demanding that he should be allowed to take upon himself the sentinel's duty. To this all agreed, and so the matter was decided. So the day, as we have said, wore away, and no movement was made by either party. The outlaws remained in their camp, and the trapper in his. The old man had passed the day at a point on the bank, which commanded both a view up the lake and the approach to the cabin from the rear. As he watched, his mind was active in devising a plan by which he could accomplish what he had undertaken. His objective point was the big tent in the camp of the outlaws, and the rescue of one whom he believed was imprisoned in it. Beyond this he had no desire, he said, speaking to the Yankee who was in a warlike mood. No, no, boy, I've seen blood enough shed, and a fight should not be craved by a rational being. Yes, I've had fighting enough in my day, and I hope I may never line the sights on the morrow again. But that tent must be looked into for certain, and the quicker I can get my head within the canvas, the better it'll be for all concerned. So tonight... If it be dark enough, and I concede it will be, for the signs in the nor'east point in that direction, we'll ambush the vagabonds. Yes, continued the old man. I'll go into the heart of their camp tonight, and when I come out, I'll know what their devilment means. Here, boy, take my place. And if you see a boat on the lake or a bush moving the clearing back of the cabin, do ye give me a call of an owl and get inside the door as quick as your legs will carry you. Now keep your eyes wide open, and use your legs if you see any movements in the bush, or I wouldn't give one of your brass watches for your life, for the vagabonds owe you a grudge, and their powder will burn as quick as an honest man's. So saying, the old trapper shouldered his rifle, and taking the axe in his hand, disappeared in the woods to the north of the cabin. In an hour he returned, bearing on his shoulders two immense barks, which he had peeled from two large spruce trees, some seven feet in length, and going to the beach, placed them carefully in the bottom of his boat. 
It was well nigh ten o'clock in the evening when he and his companion entered the boat, and after pausing a moment to listen, he pushed it off upon the lake and disappeared in the darkness. Half an hour of paddling brought him within a quarter of a mile of the outlaw's camp. Then the boat came to a stop, and speaking in a whisper, the old man said, Now, boy, I'm going into the enemy's camp, and while I don't mean to run any risks, still ambushing is ambushing. And when a man begins to crawl, there's no telling who he'll crawl against. And I know the vagabond who leads the gang too well not to know that his eyes and ears won't be shut tonight, though I certainly expect he'll be ambushing the cabin arter us instead of guarding his own as he ought to do. Still, it may be he's been overruled by a wiser head than his own. And if so, he's watching for us this minute, somewhere back of the lodge or the tent there. Now, boy, we'll go ashore, and I'll tell you my plan. Keep your knife with you, but this is to be an ambushment, not a fight. And if anything happens and it comes to any earnestness, your fists and your legs will serve you better in the dark than a whipping. Now remember, boy, that all I want you to do is to get within sight of the camp so you can see what's going on for the fire you see is kept lit. And if you see anything unusual going on, do you give the signal, two calls of an owl, and after you have started, and I certainly advise you, to hist along as fast as your legs can carry you. If anything should happen, you may bark like a fox as you take the first leaps, that I may catch the direction of your going. Careful now, and make no noise as you get out of the boat, for nothing is so safe as silence in an ambushment. So saying, the old man urged the boat gently to the shore, and both of the men stepped noiselessly out upon the beach. Don't forget, whispered the trapper, don't forget that the boat is just beyond the big pine here, for if you have to run for it, it would be unfortunate should you miss it. And if the vagabonds be out of you, don't wait for my coming, but push on at once and make yourself safe. You'll hear my call on the shore, two croaks of a frog if I want you. And if you don't hear me, follow the shore till you come to the cabin and expect me a fortnight. Now then, let's put on our clothes. I certainly doubt if the tailoring of the settlements could make you such a suit. And the old man laughed noiselessly as he ended. The plan of the trapper was now revealed, and the Yankee could with difficulty restrain his merriment as he assumed the disguise, which was nothing but the encasing of himself in the spruce bark which the trapper had peeled for the service. As we have said, the bark was from a large tree and cut nearly seven feet in length, and as it was, of course, slit from end to end, it could be sprung open, allowing one, as it were, to enter it, and the moment one was within and the pressure was remitted, it would spring together again, thus making a veritable encasement of bark. To make them more perfectly adapted for the uses which they were to serve, the trapper had cut here and there a hole in the body of the bark so that with slight movement of the head the eye could survey his surroundings even when the body was stretched prone upon the ground. He had also, about that portion of the bark, where the arms and knees came, cut away a section so that the person could move himself in either direction at will. A more perfect concealment was surely never planned, or one less likely to attract the attention of a sentinel, for when the trapper had encased himself in his bark armor and stretched himself on the ground, no passerby, however on the alert he might be, could possibly have seen anything more suspicious than the trunk of a spruce log lying across his path. 
"'Now?' said the trapper, speaking in a whisper to his companion, as both were standing encased with the protecting bark. "'The time has come for us to act. I want you to keep along the beach, for the sand gives no noise if you move slow until you come to the edge of the camp. Then do ye lie down and crawl in as far as ye can with safety, and don't be risky, and remember to keep beyond the firelight. And whatever you forget, don't forget to move slow.' An inch a minute is a good gait in an ambushment, for it gives you time to look and think both, and most ambushments are spoilt by being in a hurry. Lord, what a thing patience is, and how few there be that has it, muttered the trapper. If a man only knew enough to wait, he could do all he undertook, for all changes be on the side of him who don't hurry. Now, boy, resumed the old man, do ye keep your eyes and ears open, and see and hear all ye can, and if all goes well, you hear the frogs croak afore an hour is past, which do ye take as your signal to join me at the spot where ye hear it. What shall I do? whispered the Yankee. If anything goes wrong, shall I fight or run? I can't tell you, boy. No, I can't tell you, for there's no advising with certainty aforehand in such matters, answered the trapper. I must leave it for your sense, boy, to decide. If worst comes to worst, if the end comes, do what seems to you best. Fight if you must, but run if you can, for your legs be lengthy, and if you got them going in a straight line, they'd reach for a good deal of ground, as I conceit, especially if the vagabonds was out of you, and a little powder was being burnt in your rear. But whatever you do, move slow, make no noise. And if worse comes to worst, and anything happens to you, they'll hear the crack of my piece from the bush back of their camp as soon as the sun shows me the sights. For the piece is here, and the powder and bullets be in my pocket. Now do your best, and may the Lord help them who be trying to help him. Ah, me, I shouldn't feel the need of him so strong, I fear, if the boy was with me tonight. So saying, the trapper took the roll of bark under his arm and disappeared in the woods, while the Yankee, holding the bark in which he was encased, partially opened in front of him so that he could move his legs freely, started as noiselessly along the beach, walking in his stockings as the trapper had advised. In the camp of the outlaws, the situation was as follows. The giant sat on a log in front of the big tent, drowsy but not asleep. The half-breed was standing motionless, leaning against a huge pine some rods further inland, his eyes and ears alike open, a knife in his belt and a revolver at full cock in his hand. One of the outlaws was in a canoe patrolling the water in front of the camp. The gambler sat on a log gazing into the fitful flame, and now and then quietly lifting his face and running his eyes around the limited range of vision they commanded. The three remaining outlaws were stretched on the ground, sleeping soundly, which was the situation of the camp when the trapper and his companion began to move from different directions upon it. The first thing that the trapper did was to reach a position from whence he could fetch a straight line for the big tent, where leaving the bark and his rifle inside of it, he proceeded to push his investigations as to the condition of the camp as it then was. It was his hope that the outlaws had returned to the cabin, and were then outlying around it. Indeed, he felt that such was the case, for he reasoned from what he knew of the half-breed that his defeat would overcome his caution and cause him to be more eager to effect his destruction than to protect his charge. 
but the old man admitted to himself that such might not be the case, and that his enemy might even at that minute be within a dozen rods of him. It was therefore with utmost skill that he continued to make his approach toward the tent, which he did, not by moving directly upon it, but by oblique movement which would carry him almost parallel to the rear of the defense on which he knew the sentinels, if sentinels there were, would be posted, and within a few rods of it. The marvelous skill with which the old woodsman accomplished this showed that he was indeed a master at the business. Inch by inch he worked his way along, his hands feeling in the darkness ahead of his advance and removing every twig and pine cone that lay in his path. Such patience and such work brings its own reward. His progress was slow, very slow, but absolutely noiseless. It was well it was so, for the old man had gone hardly the length of the line before he knew an enemy was near. The half-breed, leaning as he was against a pine, had slightly moved his shoulders against the bark, and the noise, slight as it was, had told the trapper the whole story. He knew that his enemies were on the alert, and that he was within twenty feet of one of their sentinels. For several minutes the old man lay and thought. Should he retire? Should he take the risk and go on? He reasoned the matter in his own mind for a moment and continued to go on. He was successful. Slowly he drew himself along over the mosses, past the half-breed leaning against the pine, undiscovered, and in a few moments his ear was against the canvas cover of the tent. What did he hear? At first nothing. Then a sound, a sound as of a person moving, moving softly as a woman might move. The sound moved from one end of the tent to the other, backward and forward, not swiftly but slowly. Then it stopped. The person had evidently seated, shall I say himself? Shall I say herself? Was it a man? Was it a woman? The trapper, in answer to the mental interrogation, drew his knife, inwardly saying, I'll see, and applied its point to the stout canvas. Slowly but steadily he pushed the sharp edge downward through the woven fabric until a rent fully a foot long was made in the cloth. The deed was done. The old man slowly sheathed the knife and putting his fingers to the edges of the rent prepared to draw them apart. His eye was almost at the aperture and in another moment the secret of the tent would have been solved when a frightful yell broke upon the air and the trapper knew that the Yankee was in trouble. End of chapter 8